This podcast is made possible by Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school, with locations across the United States and online. Become a recognized expert and join the wine community and gain the confidence to do what you love with the winner of the WSET and Riedel Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. Listeners of this podcast enjoy a special 5% discount on any Napa Valley Wine Academy classes when they use the code NVWA podcast at the time of enrollment. That code again is NVWA podcast. For more information on all the courses offered, visit NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. That's NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Satan is a story inside the story. I'm going to start from the end. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, this is the Stories Behind Wine, a podcast dedicated to the stories, people, places, and history that influenced the world of wine. In this episode, I sit down with Gianmario Villa, an Italian native, a sommelier, author, and ambassador of the Consorzio of Franciacorta. We discuss Gianmario's journey and explore the origin of Italy's premier sparkling wine region. This is their story. Why don't you tell me your uh, first and last name and what you do in the wine business? The first answer is very easy to give you, Gianmario Villa. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it and love being part of this podcast. What I do in the wine business is a bit more complex. I'm going to try to simplify. It's a long journey that started around year 2000 or so. And today, an author, a public speaker, I still teach some wine courses, food and wine pairing in particular. I collaborate with UCLA, Center for Medieval and Renaissance Research, as well as UCLA Extension, together with other entities and the association like the Getty Museum and so forth. I guess my goal right now is to be a dad and to teach everything I know about wine and write about wine when I find some time. But before that, I spent many years traveling around the U.S. and Canada teaching for a sommelier association, part of the council. I was a council member, marketing director of that association as well. And I treasure that period of my life because I was able to see the wonderful scenario that composed this mosaic, which is today America. And traveled a lot, met a lot of people, and uh, challenged myself teaching and answering to difficult questions and training sommelier. I became a master taster, an official taster, and also an official teacher. So I surrounded myself of people in love with wine, first of all, but also in love with life, because wine is a beautiful part of life, wine and food. Absolutely. So tell our listeners where you're obviously a native Italian. Tell us where you come from in Italy and what your early life might have looked like? Oh, I might have a tear in my eyes after that. I come from a town called Rimini, which gave the birth to Federico Fellini, among others. And uh, I think that kind of oniric word, surrealism and dreamy character is part of my life since I was a kid and a teenager. And uh, I kind of applied that to my work. I start off as a journalist and as a photo reporter. I major in political science, history, and mass communication, and I always tried to combine my skills and my knowledge in what I was doing. So I never loved labels. I never liked to identify myself with one tag. I like to wear different hats because I believe 
I believe in the Renaissance form of expression. I believe that people should focus on a specific job or profession, but in the same time expand their horizon and also fell in love with different parts of their skills. So I was born and raised in Rimini. I lived between Rimini and Bologna. I lived in France for a little bit. And when it was time to actually to move to France, for some reason, I decided to come to New York. <laughs> At that point, I was already a certified advanced sommelier, by the way. I spent a lot of years between journalism and marketing. But I had a secret desire to know more about wine and food. And I remember one night I was walking in a dark alley and there was a side door of a restaurant tomorrow. Uh, first class of the first level of sommelier from the Italian Sommelier Association. And I, why not? Let's go try. And then the first class led into the actual first level. And then if you do the first, you want to do the second. At that point, you want to get certified. And inside of me, I knew that nobody could take away that degree. And if I wanted to restart my life from somewhere, I could propose myself as a wine director or a wine journalist or a psalm. And that's what happened in New York, which was the beginning of my experience in US who led to a family and now I'm a citizen. Amazing story. And you are a Renaissance man in, in the truest sense from going from journalism to the wine industry and teaching at museums and all that. So I think it's going to be an inspiring story for our listeners. Tell me a little bit about one of your titles as Master Taster. Why don't you tell our listeners what does that mean and what does that entail? Yes, first of all, I was part for a long time with the North American Somali Association. I actually studied to get my certification to teach. And actually, I had to relearn everything. My vocabulary was in Italian, French, and some basic English. But to teach in English, it's pretty hard because the communication is not on me talking. It's on people understanding what I'm talking about. I had to relearn the vocabulary, also to learn how to communicate, how to get hold of the attention of people, how to be entertainment and also educational at the same time. So the idea was to keep studying and being certified, which means you can show a diploma. Where I'm from, you're a psalm, not because you work at a restaurant, because you got a certification. And I believe in education and I believe in teaching today. So I became eventually Master Taster, which was another step on top of the Advanced Certified Sommelier because it was a title I loved to put next to my name. And also, I love the tasting part because I believe that tasting a wine is the... You start double-checking the facts. You start checking out if there are any sins behind a bottle. You start understanding the background of a wine, what the winemaker wants to tell you, and most importantly, how to enjoy a bottle with food. I'm a big foodie. I'm writing a book right now with a chef here based in Los Angeles, Gino Angelini, which I adore. He's from my hometown, Rimini, and he's about Federico Fellini food stories. So there's our eight and a half food stories behind the scene of Federico Fellini. So I interviewed directors, actors, producers, and so forth, but from a food point of view. And wine comes always through the window. We have a beautiful expression in Italian, which says, whatever does not come through the door can come through the window. So in this food book, wine is going to come through the window. That's amazing. So what is it like writing a book? That seems like a daunting thing. How's the process going? We are experiencing unusual times these days. So everything got off the schedule a bit, off the timing I expected. But it's exciting. I found myself in a sort of a auto-therapy writing because you decide eventually what to write about. You decide eventually who you want to interview and what to talk about. I'm an independent free thinker and I like to keep that way. It's exciting because, again, you're focused on what you love. 
which is a fundamental part of anybody's life. And I wish I had this kind of knowledge back in my teenaging life. Okay, I was more enjoying jazz and blue feelings sometimes. But eventually, you come to a moment you get to know yourself better. And uh, it's the only way also to be a good companion for your friends and family. And the only way to make people happy is to be happy yourself. And uh, writing makes me happy right now. That's amazing. You also have probably a very envious job for many people. And that is to you work with probably one of Italy's most renowned wine regions. Why don't you tell us what you do for the wine region? I'll let you introduce the wine region uh, and tell us a little bit about what you do for them because I'm excited to dig into that wine region exploring it with you a little bit today. Yeah, I worked for a few consortia in my recent past, but this one is the one that excites me the most because I feel like I'm wearing a special jacket with a gold medal when I talk about it. Franciacorte is the finest way of drinking a Metodo Classico from Italy. Franciacorte is always associated to special moments, to extraordinary wines, to a breathtaking landscape. It's considered the top of the pyramid of the quality of of wines from Italy. And uh, it goes together with the important names of the rest of the peninsula, of course, from red to white. Uh, We're talking about, I don't like to say the sparkling wine. Franciacorte is Franciacorte. It's a metodo classico. Second fermentation in the bottle, we're going to talk about this. But like I said, it makes me proud and happy because when they offer me the position to be their brand ambassador in California, which is the number one market for Franciacorte, in US together with New York, I knew I was taking over a big challenge because San Franciacorta needs to communicate and reposition the brand, the reputation, but most importantly, explain. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about when you were at the bar, <laughs> sitting at the bar and drinking a glass of wine. People normally ask for a champagne wine when they mean a sparkling wine. And that was, it's, I feel goosebumps in my my body because Franciacorta is Franciacorta, Champagne is Champagne, Cava is Cava, and so forth. So I believe what is needed here is to explain, yes, to the wine industry, because it's the most important hub eventually to the wine market, but also to the audience. People make the history, people make the choices, people drive the market. It's not the other way around. So we need to talk to people to let them know. How did you get to become the brand ambassador for the region? Did they call you out of the blue? Is What's the process for becoming a brand ambassador? They found me. They asked me to submit my name for the position, frankly. I had a friend working in the industry saying that they were looking for someone, and then eventually they called me. We had several talks. It was not an easy step. I'm sure there were a lot of people in line for this position, and eventually put together a plan. I put together a plan of action. And I am a bittersweet person, meaning like I know what I want. I know how I want to achieve it. And uh, when I propose something, it's because I believe it's the best to the cause. And uh, I leave not a lot of room to compromise. I do believe in compromise. I I major in political science. My family wanted to be a, a diplomatic. So I do believe in compromise. But when you have high expectation on the final goal, then you need to have a street plan. The, the shortest route from A to B is a straight line, not a curvy route. Very well said. Well, let's dig into the region a little bit because it is, first of all, probably one of the most beautiful wine regions in Italy. But let's talk a little bit about the history first because it has a unique history. While winemaking goes back, I think, back to the 13th century, the sparkling wines of Franciacorta are, relatively speaking, a recent development. Tell us a little bit about the birth of sparkling Franciacorta. 
Yes, you actually are right. And when you have a deep history, when you go back for centuries on something, you can actually explain partially the importance of a wine in this case, or you can apply the same concept to other fields. But in terms of uh, history of Francia Corta, I would like to uh, start with etymology. Francia Corta comes from Curte Franco or Franche Curtes in Latin, which are basically where free courts exempted for taxes. And in the 11-ish century, with the arrival of Clunian monks from Burgundy, from Cluny, Burgundy, but also from other parts of Italy, Cistercian monks, which are basically the two entities that reestablished the wine production after the fall of the Roman Empire around Europe and in Italy in particular. They settled in this area, and we will know shortly why, and they were exempted from duties and taxes. So this is the beginning also for what was the rising of a new form of business. Don't forget around that time also, or shortly after, uh, wine merchants from Tuscany start traveling around Italy and then to England, and the wine merchant category became more important, and wine became from an essential part of the religious aspect of the daily life of Europeans and Italians to actually a major business factor and trade. Back in the history, the first time we can actually find in the records the name uh, Francia Corta, or actually Franza Corta, as you know, every word has a long process of adapting in people's language, was in the 1277 in a municipality called Brescia, which is actually right by the district of Francia Corta. And from then we start finding actually records of names, styles of wines. Actually, you mentioned sparkling wine. The first time we see written on paper a referral to the sparkling wine is actually from Gerolamo Conforti, 5070, when he talks about the mordacious wines of this area of Fulte Pranza. Mordacious is like a referral to bubbles, to lively sparkle wine. So as we know today, of course, the, the second fermentation in bottle, the Metodo Classico, which is a sort of a technological step ahead on modern wines. But back at that time, we already see how common was the consumption of lively sparkle and sparkle wines in the area. Also, the Napoleonic Army, by the way, which invaded the north part of Italy, registering their land of registry, about a thousand hectares vines planted for the production of fizzy wines. This is back in 1809. The contemporary version of the wine, as we know, comes only from the 60s on, actually. I think the pioneer we want to mention is Franco Zigliani because he's the first one who produced a Pinot from Francia Corte in the early 60s. And then from then we start seeing a very quick evolution of the district because in 67 they achieved the DOC appellation. And then eventually, shortly after a viticultural study, which I want to talk about a bit later, in 95 they achieved the DOCG. And for the first time, an appellation focused exclusively on the production of Metodo Classico achieved a DOCG, which is a landmark in the Italian history. That's amazing. And I know in the late 90s to early 2000s, too, I mean, Francia saw a huge growth in production of the quality wines, but also in interest in the wines. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
It's around the time I started studying to become a sommelier. So something was happening around Italy. Was a relation? <laughs> well, first of all, I was a major contributor. Well, actually, I was thinking about Franciacorta that the day. I'm like, this is like a high school love because I loved Franciacorta back in the days when I was in cruising around uh, Rimini, Bologna, and Milano. But I rediscovered this love today. I really like this two steps kind of love because it's a mature love. It's a riper love for me, for Francia Corta. But because in 95, we have the DOCG appellation established from Francia Corta, and because we have an average of between 18 months to 60 months, and we're going to talk in a bit about the different styles, then naturally, from year 2000 on, we start seeing more products around. We start seeing more producer coming in production or investing in Franciacorta. And I'm not talking only about maybe a major investor that believe in the in Franciacorta era, but also family. Franciacorta is made of family-owned wineries, of women winemakers, of wineries that invested in sustainability way before the word became popular in our language, wine industry language these days. So I believe when you receive a sort of recognition like the achievement of the DOCG at that point, that the older industries are getting stronger, planting more vineyards, producing more wines, but not forgetting about the quality. I know we talk about high quality applied to a lot of concepts these days, okay? But when we talk about Franciacorta, we talk about an area with barely 3,000 hectares of land. 62%, 62%, by the way, are already certified organic. So we're talking about a land that is pretty limited, but not in the goal they want to achieve. So quality over quality over quality, and slowly they start spreading. And today, I think they produce about 80 million bottles. And the size, the average size is medium to small of its winery, because again, they're mostly family-owned and run. Amazing. I know, I think it was Tom Stevenson who said once that this region is the only compact wine area producing world-class sparkling wines in Italy. So a great compliment. I will steal the quote and mention Tom uh, after that. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about beyond the fact that Franciacorta is in Italy, beyond that it's in one of the most beautiful areas around Lake Izio. Let's talk a little bit about what makes it special from a grape variety perspective. And then maybe let's talk a little bit about the different styles, because there's some interesting styles as well. I'll be honest. I asked myself that before I took a job, because when it's time to communicate and to preach about an area, you want to make sure you know the answer. I believe, I think I got the answer in this term. Wine is always the product of the combination of three factors. One is, and Mother Nature is really dominant on this. One is the meteorology, the climate, so the micro and microclimate, the, the geography and the geology, and I'm a nerd, I'm a part-time nerd on geology, and the history and the culture of an area, which is the human effect. So combining these three factors, we can explain and decode the wines, and I believe To make the long story short, and we can expand the story a little later, the proximity to the Iseo Lake, which is a lake of uh, glacier origin, the proximity to the Olio River, the proximity to the Alps, which I adore. I was born and raised in Emilia-Romagna, nearby the Adriatic, with sweet rolling hills, but the Alps are breathtaking, and the Russian Alps of the Franciacorta area are stunning in the landscape. So when you combine 
the high altitude, the high latitude also, we're far from the Mediterranean concept of winemaking here. When you combine the exceptional morainic soil coming from the moving glacier coming from the north, the temperature excursion day and night, summer and winter, the effect of the lake warming up the temperature in the, during the freezing part of the year, releasing heat. That's really what makes a difference to me and why I'm justifying such an amazing, outstanding quality on these wines, for sure. So, And together, I will go with the Made in Italy. I sound like a promo. I am also a promo right now, okay? But I have to say, when I drink French, I like to detect that French twist. When I drink Spain, I like to feel Spain in a wine. You like to, when you go as a tourist, you don't want to go in the commercial route. You want to find what the real, the locals eat, the real part of a town or a countryside. And the same with the wine. You want to understand in between the lines. And I think giving that made in Italy, deliver the extra element. You drink Italian, you feel the Italian landscape, you get that beautiful acidity coming from the area, the minerality coming from the soil. You can feel the freezing temperature, but in the same time, a warm hug. Amazing. Talk to us maybe a little bit about the soils. You said it's one of your passions, the soils. So love to dig a little bit deeper, no pun intended, or pun intended, on a description of the soils that can be found in this area. Absolutely. And then I'm going to mention also the style of Franza Quarta. First, let's relocate where we are. We are in the deep north of Italy. Deep north of Italy, literally a stone throw from Milan. In the central east portion of Lombardy, you have the Russian Alps in front of you and Switzerland above that. So we are definitely on the non-stereotype landscape of Italy, okay? We have a beautiful river running on the west, the Olio River. The north is the Iseo Lake, the Brescia town in the south, and this beautiful amphitheater-shaped wine district. I don't use the word region because the size is really a district. And the amphitheater is the key word here because about 10,000 years ago or so, there was a glacier moving, heading south. And then at some point around the Iseo Lake split in two, forming this amphitheater shape, and brought extra mineral content through the morainic soil to an area already rich of mineral content, so mineral over minerals, which is, in terms of wine, you can find... Uh, complexity in the descriptor for the minerality. At that point, we already have the majority of the work done. Mother Nature did this job, her job. You have a spectacular landscape and a spectacular area where you only want to receive vines and plant vines and start your production. That's what the monks actually got it right first. So this is the area we're talking about. And in terms of geology, it's not clay or sand, the common element here, again, is the morainal soil. I want to just pick a couple of examples because I do believe, actually I do believe, I do believe on communicating this part. Behind the fragrance, behind the floral aspect, behind the scriptor, behind the primary aromas, the primary aromas are the aromas typical of a varietal. Secondary aromas are the one typical of the fermentation, tertiary of the aging part of the wine. So the primary aromas, the DNA of the grapes, where do the aromas come from? Where if you detect floral aromas, for example, most likely those vines were planted in extreme agile fruit deposit, which gives this typical floral note together with a good acidity. Oh, to give you another example, when we have spice 
natural in the wine, so not a spice coming from the use of oak, but a spice coming from the wine then is a steepil food deposit with a very high olfactory persistence and a very good sugar level as well. So we can see the, and we have a beautiful map, by the way, francacorta.net. You can find the English version of the website and find all these jiki elements with maps, geological maps and food pairing and so forth. I know your wonderful website of the Napa Valley Wine Academy also is carrying or will carry shortly the same map. You see this mosaic of colors and each color is, of course, a soil type that makes this wine region so colorful, but also so diversified. The tradition of blending different crews goes with the idea of using the notes as a musician, as a composer. I like to refer often a wine like uh, an eclectic, but yet an intelligent composer that plays these different instruments to compose his melody. So the different instruments can be the different grapes, but also the different instrument can be the same grape coming from different soil type. If you know what you want, it's always the best starting point when you're a winemaker. You acknowledge what you're dealing with, what Mother Nature gives you, and you acknowledge also what is your goal in terms of production. And that's probably true for a lot of things in life, by the way. But uh, the idea of blending different crews, typical of a lot of winemakers here, it's just because they want to collect the scriptures and make this wonderful bouquet composed by different flowers or different instruments for the same melody. We can use different metaphors to explain the same concept. Yeah, well, I love the metaphors. I mean, before we get into the styles, because I know we want to yeah. spend some time to talk about that, but what are the predominant grape varieties that make up Franciacorta? Absolutely. Chardonnay, Pinot Nero, Pinot Bianco, and the, the novelty of uh, very recently, Herba Mat. Chardonnay, I said Pinot Nero and Pinot Bianco to stress the made in Italy, the Italian concept, but of course Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc. And Herba Mat is a very small production of a grape that is now been reintroduced in the production of Franciacorta, and 2020 vintage will be the first one, by the way, with Herba Mat on it. It's probably older as Franciacorta because the first time that Herba Mat was mentioned is back in the late 1560s or 70s, I forgot, I think 1567 or so, where Herba Mat actually was mentioned by a local agronomist called Agostino Gallo as a local varietal. And today we are experienced back in the team Herba Mat. So we have four grapes, but trust me, Chardonnay and Pinot Nero are the two you want to keep the focus on. Excellent. So the wines are so exciting and the different styles of wine. So some of them mirror or are familiar to listeners who are familiar, obviously, with champagne and other sparkling wine styles. But there's one that is particularly of interest that I think most people aren't aware of. So why don't you list the styles, describe them a little bit, and then we'll want to spend some time talking about the Sauten style as well. I'm going to mention the style by referring to this. There is a Franciacorta for any occasion. Consorte told me once, yes, aperitivo, or celebrating special moments and so forth, but Franciacorta needs to be delivered as a wine that can be applied to all different kind of recipe we have in Italy and around the States. We, it's something we can enjoy in different moments. And I like that because having different style, you can really pick the one that you want to enjoy with your food or without. So Franciacorta, regular. Without any other specification, the front label is a wine made of Chardonnay, Pinot Nero, Pinot Bianco, up to 50%, 
and Herbamat up to 10%. The minimum aging is 18 months. So that's a wine who delivers fresh, approachable, and this is important because sometimes you want to leave room to the conversation and to the guest in front of you, okay? So the wine needs to do its job, and then you go from there. A Franciacorta Satin, I will actually mention last, okay? A Franciacorta Rosé, it's a wine with a minimum 24 months of age from the tirage. Pinot Nero here, minimum 35%, Chardonnay maximum 65%, and Pinot Bianco maximum 50%. Herba Mat, okay, up to 10%. So the backbone, of course, must be Pinot Nero. All the style, with the exception of Satin, have a bottle pressure between 5 and 6 atmosphere. And I will tell you why Satin is lower than that. Then we have two more styles, Vintage and Reserva. 30 months minimum for the vintage, 60 months minimum for Reserva, and the grapes are allowed are the same as the regular Francia Corta. So Chardonnay, Pinot Nero, Pinot Bianco, and Herba Mat. Now, Satin. Satin is a story inside the story. I'm going to start from the end. The end is that Francia Corta is a wine made only from white varietals, Chardonnay and Pinot Bianco, up to 50% Pinot Bianco, nothing else. Minimum of age, 24 months from the tirage, and a pressure of below 5 atmosphere. Why? It's a wine characterized by softness, smoothness, creaminess. It's the most tactile of all the wines. So slower bottle fermentation and lower bottle fermentation. And everything started in the 80s. We have a new style that few winemakers in the area were, were playing with, and there was a great excitement over this style. So. Like I said, a few winemakers were experimenting with only Chardonnay and Pinot Bianco, lower bottle pressure and slower bottle fermentation. But at some point, this style became very popular. So people start uh, studying the style and then the word satin came out only in the 90s. And it was literally a burst of a new word because they were like trying to figure out what word can deliver the message of something that is silky like seta in italian also smooth creamy and something that reminds of satinato which is the italian for frosty so the combination was satin which is a very musical way of saying it typical italian style and at that point basically uh, the fire was started uh, from uh, the early 90s i mentioned earlier an extremely important viticultural research and knowledge on nation led to eventually to the DOCG in, in 95. But around the same time, panel of enologists and winemakers uh, start testing 184 wines with the goal of identifying the true expression of satin and drawing the certification for it to include in the DOCG. So they define what are the agricultural elements, what is the winemaking process, what is the wine style and identity. This is fundamental. All the satin are slightly different, but they all need to lead to eventually the similar physical, chemical, and organolytic characteristic. And this is a very important term, by the way. The identity of a wine is made of recognizable aspect. In case of the satin, we want to smell toasted fruits like almond or hazelnut, dry fruits, white flowers. I won't go too in detail because it's good to give the category and then each producer is actually delivering a twist, right? 
the color needs to be an intense straw or golden almost with greenish hues because Chardonnay or Pinot Bianco and Pinot Bianco, if you want to use it up to 50%, define the color as well. And if you want one of the fundamental part here, the perlage, it needs to be creamy at sight. So this word creamy comes back, the cream, the texture comes back, the tactility, the tactile way of drinking. It's very, I hate to use the word sexy because I should be fired if I use that, apply to wine, but it's very intriguing and charming. Let's put it this way. Also, to wrap up the satin category differently from the other styles that you can produce, Franciacorta, Vintage, or uh, Reserva as a dosaggio zero, Brut, Extra Dry, Demisec, and so forth, satin can only be brought. And this is opening the doors widely to an eclectic food pairing that can go from Beethoven pasta to Vegetania risotto or saffron risotto or lake fish, don't forget we are by Lake of Iseo, or more simply, quote-unquote, prosciutto crudo or medium-made cheese. So the idea is to embrace a wide category of food pairing. Lovely. Satin is one of my favorite styles coming from the region. And the word that always comes to mind for me is sensual. It's a very sensual experience to drink satin-style wines. But you just touched on a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about food pairing, because I know that's one of your passions. And I know that's what these wines really excel at as well, right? Most people make the erroneous assumption that sparkling wine is only for the aperitif or for celebration. And those missing out on pairing them with foods are truly missing out. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about your favorite food pairings for the different styles of Franciacorta? I like to mention an outsider here, Sherry, because when I rediscover Sherry, I rediscovered the way of eating with Sherry. So the same way, if you pass the skepticism or the stereotype of, of food and wine pairing, and you actually go for the scientific approach of food and wine pairing, you understand why actually there are broader categories for your possible food and wine pairing. So speaking of Franciacorta, you can absolutely have a, a non-vintage, a more of a fresh, dynamic product for something that is dynamic as aperitivo or as a appetizer, absolutely. But Speaking of, for example, one of my true love, Dosaggio Zero, I love Padose, I love Satin and Dosaggio Zero in particular. One, because is a soft, a smooth hug that embraces you into this creamy world of pleasure. And the other one, you avoid drinking your calorie and you're focused on a wine that is sharp like a knife. And speaking of Dosaggio Zero or Padose, the combination can be very wide. Some ideas. So we're talking about something with very little sugar, if not zero sugar, with a very high acidity and some sapid finish. I love to go either for pork chicks grilled or fried seafood or even a fish ragu, maybe some lasagnette fish ragu. But if you want to stick with vegetarian or vegan, can you fry some zucchini blossom and be still vegan? You can, depending on the oil you use. <laughs> I'm a part-time vegetarian, so <laughs> I, I do believe on alternating your addiction, right? Or something that actually comes from the memory of my family. I remember the zucchini filled with meat from my grandmother. She was basically with a tiny cylinder creating this hole inside the zucchini and then filling up with, it could be pork, it could be veal, it could be turkey, by the way, or it could be another medley of vegetables, depending on the recipe you want to follow. 
bake those with or without tomatoes, depending on the combination. For the pairing with dosaggio zero, we'll avoid the tomato. But you have this beautiful decadent dish where the acidity cuts through the needle. And in the same time, important element when you drink sparkling wine, by the way, the palate is rinsed and cleaned up, ready for another sip or another bite. So I do believe in that harmony or balance in life, in love, at work. Harmony is a key point. And harmony is not one element prevailing on the other. If you talk to a chef, you will say the last memory in your mouth, in your taste, nice to be the food. If you talk to a sommelier, no, absolutely, it's the wine. Well, I feel in the middle here. I believe in harmony, so I believe that there should be a sort of a harmonious dance between food and wine because I want more. <laughs> another sip and another bite. That's the idea of the Padose. For Satin, we can go for something like venison. Thinking out of the box, okay? I could mention even like Porcini Carpaccio, typical of the area of Iseo Lake, also here in California. We're so lucky we live in California. We eat so well. But venison is one of those meat that actually for the tendency, the characteristic of venison can be very well paired with the softness and the creaminess of Franciacorta or even a white lasagna. I'm sorry, my fellow Emilia Romagna might listen right now. Uh, they might say something about it. There are purists of lasagna, purists of tagliatelle, but I believe that a crossover of traditions is always a good idea when you want to explore new, new pairings. So veal tartare, white lasagnette, porcini carpaccio, why not? Spicy food. I don't think you need, I might be unpopular right now, but I don't think you need too much spice when the ingredient, the raw ingredients are good, fish or meat, but a twist is always good. And I think satin among all the Francia Corta can be a good pairing for something more on the spicy tendency. In food and wine pairing, spice is a very hard element to pair with. Too cold, too hot, spice, as you know. But a mild perception of spiciness for satin can be a nice idea. For rosé, here we can combine the texture, the color with some more additional body. And bluefish, I'm a big fan of bluefish. Depending on the structure of the wine, I know we're talking about a Metodo Classico, so we're not talking about wine with full structure, but we do detect a more important body in some products, okay? In that case, some bluefish ragu tagliatelle, roasted eel, again, element with fat and extra flavor, because if you have a persistent finish on the wine, then you want to find a similar persistence on the food. If you have a certain structure on the wine, you want to, in the same time, pair that with a similar structure in food. So the idea is always to find that very feeble and delicate harmony that can last for a second, but when you find it is fantastic, really. That's amazing. So really excited for your book to come out because I think you speak so eloquently about food and wine pairing, and these wines are just ripe for those great matches that you described. If someone wants to learn more about Franciacorta, its wines, the region, What's the best way for them to do that? I believe the best way is to follow the activities of the Napa Valley Wine Academy <laughs> so they can <laughs> actually listen. No, um, of course that. I would say franciacorta.net, the official website, is the answer to a lot of questions. Actually, there are more answers to the same question because you can dig in the history, you can download maps, you can find the collective food pairing as well as traditional food pairing. So that's the first way to go. The second way to go is to probably talk to your 
wine supplier, the person you trust the most, the wine store, the wine merchant, a good friend, and ask about it because Franciacorta is out there. It's not maybe a common answer right now, but we do have the product. We have a lot of wineries represented in California as well as the rest of the United States. So asking, we say in Italian, is half of obtaining something. So you need to ask for your knowledge. You need to ask for your education. You need to ask for your product. So check out the official website. Check out my social media. I am name and last name, Gianmario Villa. I like to be behind the scene and a bit under the radar. So I'm not somebody that is always posting privacy. But I always post something I love and I always post something about one education, and specifically in Francia Corta, which, by the way, I'm writing a chapter in my book about Francia Corta pairing in Alpaito Fellini. We will derive a lot of news. Excellent. Again, the Napa Valley One Academy, I think, is one of the strongest supporters on Francia Corte, and I love that. It's been a real pleasure, Gian Mario, to sit down with you today and to learn a little bit more about your story and the story of Francia Corte. Hopefully, we've inspired people to go out and this New Year's Eve, and in fact, any day, to go out and seek a bottle of Francia Corte and enjoy it and share it with friends. We wish you, Gian Mario, a very happy holidays. And to all of our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in today. And we hopefully can have you back again soon on another episode. I would love that. I feel truly honored to be part of the podcast because I love the way you're keeping the conversation is educational, entertaining, and very intimate at the same time. Thank you for joining us this week on the Stories Behind Wine. If you would like to suggest an interview subject or show topic, please email us at sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. Again, that email address is sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. If you like what you've heard, we hope that you'll visit our website, napavalleywineacademy.com forward slash podcast and share us with your friends and colleagues. We'd also really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It really helps out. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous episodes and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Join us next time for another episode of the Stories Behind Wine. Until then, thank you for listening.